Greetings. I'm Paul Peppis, the director of the Oregon Humanities Center at the University of Oregon. Welcome to another of uh, our online editions of the OHC's regular Work in Progress talks. Work in Progress talks are presentations given by faculty and graduate students who are current research fellows at the Oregon Humanities Center when they talk about their research projects. If you have questions at the end of the talk, please use the chat feature of Zoom. I will moderate and ask the questions. Um, this talk is being recorded and will be available for viewing later today on the Oregon Humanities Center's website and YouTube channel. It's a great pleasure to introduce our speaker for today, uh, Tara Keegan, a PhD candidate in history at the University of Oregon and a 2020-2021 Oregon Humanities Center dissertation fellow. Tara's academic interests include Native America and Native American history, sports, 20th century U.S. history. Tara earned her MA in Native American history at UO. She received the Leah Kirker Memorial Award for Outstanding Teaching in 2016 and a Peggy Pascoe Dissertation Fellowship in 2017. Based on her dissertation, Tara's work in progress talk today is titled Running the Redwood Empire, Indigeneity, Modernity, and a 480-mile foot race. Welcome, Tara. It's great to have you here. Hi, thank you so much. Uh, thank you everyone for being here. Uh, can everyone hear me? I don't think I'm muted. I'm good to go there. Okay, thank you. Um, first, I just wanted to thank the Oregon Humanities Centers from the bottom of my heart. Um, it's wonderful to have this intellectual community, especially right now, um, especially as I live and work from Vermont. I am very far away, but this makes me feel a little bit closer. Not to mention that this is really crucial support coming at a really critical time. I am in the final throes of dissertating. So to have time to focus on the writing as I attempt to wrap up at the end of this year um, has been very liberating and wonderful. So thank you so much. And thank you everyone for showing up today. I'm going to screen share. So I will be working with slides. Um, as Dr. Peppa said, uh, today I'm talking about running the Redwood Empire, modernity, indigeneity, and a 480 mile foot race. So my plan for this talk is to walk you through my dissertation. I'll go chapter by chapter, slide by slide. Um, and then I'll tell you what I'm working on this term in particular on fellowship. Um, and it's early enough in the term where there is definitely room for input on that chapter um, in our Q&A to follow. Okay. Um, in my dissertation, I utilize archival sources, uh, statistical analysis, and oral histories to study the intersection of traditional indigenous and mainstream American cultures uh, and reconstruct a timeline of genocide, survival, adaptation, and influence in Northern California. I look at a period between the gold rush of the 1840s and 50s um, to the growth of regional identities and economies in the 1920s. Uh, Native people in that time went from being the targets of genocide to actually key celebrities that projected Indian modernity in the face of vanishing race ideology, which I'll talk more about. Um, my central case study is an event called the Redwood Highway Indian Marathon of 1927 and 1928. So in 1927, 
there was just enough of a cohesive road through the Redwood Forest. This is California 101 or the Redwood Highway um, for boosters to dream up an enormous publicity stunt to promote tourist travel to what they called the Redwood Empire. And that empire was the coastal counties um, of Northern California and Southern Oregon, north of San Francisco Bay. There are a lot of tourist agencies, booster organizations, chambers of commerces that came together to put on this foot race that started in San Francisco and ended in Grants Pass, Oregon. So I have that map up here. They opened the race only to quote members of the Indian race um, and promoters did that for some very predictable reasons. American Indian cultures were and often still are misunderstood by white outsiders to be relics of the past. And Americans ascribed all sorts of um, romanticized ideas about earthly harmony and mystical wisdom to native people. We call this noble savagery. Um, this myth of the vanishing race, very alive and well in 1927, suggested that the growth of industrial society would render these primitive children of the forest extinct. Um, very problematic, very false stereotype, but again, very alive and well in the 1920s. People were rushing to collect Indian artifacts, curios, um, and document things like Indian ceremonies to get a snapshot of these cultures before they were doomed to this extinction. Um, that's what the thinking was. So uh, initial, initial promotional material of this highway marathon drew really heavily on these narratives um, and talked about how exciting it was to have this ancient and vanishing race of people running among this ancient and vanishing race of trees. Uh, this excerpt comes from Redwoods Preservation Circles, the group that eventually became the Save the Redwoods League. Um, they call the trees remnants of a once great race, a link between the present and the prehistoric past. It says that the trees have seen the rise of civilization and it contextualizes them in rising and falling empires. And this was all in the spirit of a rush to save those trees before they were gone. I have read this same language so many times. It is uncanny how close it is to the language that articulated vanishing race mythology about native people. So this excerpt um, showed up in the Sausalito News. It was quoting the marathon chairman um, and he was a white middle-class booster. He says that the race's objective was to develop a keener interest in the fast vanishing tribes of Indians who still cling to the haunts of their ancestors. So suffice it to say that the promotion of the marathon was really firmly rooted in racist traditions and stereotypes. And unfortunately, that part of the story is not surprising. 11 men ultimately showed up for the first highway marathon in 1927. Eight of them were these guys. Um, they were Karuk Indians, uh, most of them hailing from the hills just outside of Happy Camp, which had been a, a very prominent and violent mining town during the gold rush. 
There were also three Zuni competitors. They were brought up from New Mexico to kind of challenge the California Indians on their home turf. So the, the Zunis had some name recognition in the sport. Um, it thrilled the Northern California press to have these veteran Zuni runners come up and paper after paper labeled them as being picturesque. They use that word all the time um, with the mythical expectations and the stereotypes that white people had of native people. It, it was fitting to have um, Indian runners show up not being able to speak very much English, uh, wearing headbands, um, blankets, um, sandals, things like that. In a local memoir um, about just sports throughout the Redwood Empire, uh, one spectator recalled that he was nine years old when he saw this race come through his town. And what he remembered was that, quote, I was disappointed. The grownups had made such a big thing about the Indian angle that I'd expected them to be in feathers and buckskins. So those are the memories of a nine year old. And I think that that recollection is really revealing of misunderstandings and stereotypes that white settler families held about Native people, um, associating any Indian person with these standing myths of either um, an Indian princess like Pocahontas or like the horseback plains warrior with the buckskin, the eagle feather headdress. Um, to kind of battle that potential disenchantisement in 1927, the white race promoters assigned fake Indian names, so they said, uh, to the runners. So for example, um, a man named John Southard became Mad Bull and his brothers Gorham and Marion became Rushing Water and Fighting Stag. A man named Henry Thomas became Flying Cloud. This race ultimately um, only took about a week. Uh, they made it that far in that little amount of time. The winner finished in seven days, 12 hours and 34 minutes. And the next year really staged a rematch between the first year's winner, the first year's runner up, and actually it grew to include about 30 other men. So I really see this story. Uh, I see so many vantage points from which we can really understand American culture and native California in the 1920s. I also think that that's a really crucial moment that has been overlooked in some significant ways. Uh, in order to understand the tumult of that decade, um, historians have definitely looked to race and, and gender and popular culture, but typically uh, Indian women and men don't loom very large in those conversations. Um, specifically in the Pacific Northwest, I think this race provides an excellent access point to understanding really the entire modernization of that region, uh, complete with the ground level lives of working people, uh, the development of the emergent tourist economy, and a more abstract formation of regional identity. So my basic argument in the dissertation is that the visibility that came with this event really forced reevaluations of the vanishing race myth in larger settler society. Uh, and these runners and a few other key Indian protagonists participation in it helped shape regional identity and culture with Indian people in some way at its core. That was something that they achieved through their efforts and performances. So uh, again, this I think is especially important in the California context this is only a half century out from the gold rush genocide. Um, so part of the story is a story of 
native survival through that era, then in the transition into industrialized society. Uh, when we talk only about the genocide, there have been a few really good and important books coming out uh, in the past couple years that really detail the genocide there and uh, rightfully located with not just vigilante settlers, but with the state. Um, but if we focus too much on the death and the genocide, we can actually obscure survival. And that is, a, that is a criticism that some native historians make of the field of California Indian history. So uh, I really try to look at some of the contours and mechanisms of survival. And uh, this race that I study was really at the apex of Northern California entering the American consciousness as a place on the map to visit or relocate to, not just to mine, uh, but to be a modern American citizen there, to be a traveler there. Big sports spectacles like this uh, were a staple of the ballyhoo and the roar of the 1920s. So we don't wanna overlook um, native people's participation in events like these. Um, we don't wanna overlook their enormous contribution contributions to modern society, even though they were being perceived as the antithesis of modern society. So we're nowhere near having enough studies of the intersections of what it meant to be native and what it meant to be modern. Um, through this project, I've been able to look at history in the 1920s, um, but I've really enjoyed working with the native community that produced both years winner, um, the Karuk tribe to understand how this intervention sculpted legacies beyond the 1920s and how it still looms in the community as a source of pride. So I will talk a little bit about that too. This is my basic dissertation outline and I will start walking through the chapters one by one. Uh, this is an image of white settlers in Siskiyou County, California in 1860. They moved out to mine. This was their homestead. I don't actually know too much about these individuals, but um, this is our stand-in for the huge white emigration that moved to California following the discovery of gold in, in 1848, um, just south of this region. I very intentionally start with the gold rush in my dissertation so that it comes first rather than last in the narrative. Uh, the gold rush is where many others have kind of ended their histories of native California. And I think it's powerful instead to start there and, and move forward. That certainly wasn't the end of native history in the state. Um, the gold rush did unleash a devastating genocide in Northern California where the most productive mines and most promising land sites were. The most recent estimate says that a combination of state-sponsored policy and vigilante violence killed anywhere between about 9,500 to 16,000 Native individuals. Of course, it displaced others. So in this first chapter, I do chronicle some episodes of violence and resistance um, specifically involving Karuk people um, or their neighbors. Uh, but I also try to document specific survival strategies. So here's some maps that I made. Um, the largest marks uh, rivers and mountains, which were really critical facets of the landscape that enabled life and survival. Uh, I also have the general delineations of different ancestral homelands. Um, it's not perfect. Tribal territories for regional indigenous nations. Um, and then a map of what were the largest settler towns that emerged during the gold rush um, on the bottom right. 
So what I found from archives and oral histories was that many Kruk people um, in particular effectively avoided the targeted violence by seeking refuge in the marble mountains. I don't know if you can see my cursor. Um, it was below the Klamath River, above the Salmon River in the northwest corner of the state. You can see it on the big map. Um, vigilantes and even census enumerators didn't go in there. Uh, it was really remote land and hard to navigate. But those lands were familiar to many Karuk families who knew them as hunting grounds and important sites for, for generations. So when they undertook these survival migrations, they might wait out the violence in the mountains, or they might cross through the mountains into territory they thought would still have a stronger native presence. Um, they were in lands that Carib people had long navigated on foot. Um, some people had even navigated it as messenger runners. So this is where the running story kind of begins. And I can talk more about out, um, native running history going further back if anyone wants to ask about that later. Um, but again, I kind of start with the gold rush for some really intentional reasons. Uh, now, when violence ebbed, when the mines dried up, so to speak, um, many families returned to their old homes. They mixed into the settler towns. Uh, a lot of the mining camps that had kind of been deserted became what are still the most populous towns out there. So in the second chapter, I start looking at intersections of indigeneity and um, American modernity now in this transitional period at the end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century. Um, Karuk people remained Karuk, but participated in, for example, mainstream market economies. Um, they developed friendships, partnerships, families with settlers. They altogether shaped emergent regional society and identity in the places where they lived. So I already mentioned vanishing race ideology. Um, that was very strong in California, particularly because of the mainstream interpretation of a man called Ishi, who I have pictured here. Um, the native historian, William Bauer Jr., very prominent in my work. Um, he has talked about how the Ishi story has really framed California Indian history for so many non-Indian people. So the story goes that this man called Ishi stumbled out of the wilderness and into modern civilization in Northern California in 1911. Um, white commentators quickly started calling him, quote, the last wild Indian. Um, and the famous Berkeley anthropologist, Alfred Krober, studied him at the University of California in Berkeley. Um, Ishi lived in San Francisco. He was only middle-aged. Uh, I think he was about 50 when he made it to the city, but um, he tragically died of tuberculosis in 1916. And this confirmed for a lot of people that the untamed people of the forest could not exist in industrial America, that they were too primitive to adapt to modern civilization. Again, really problematic, really persistent stereotype. Here's another woman. Her name is Fanny Athman. Um, she was a Karuk basket maker uh, who married an immigrant settler. He was a Greek miner. Uh, they married and started a family in Happy Camp in the 1860s. And for years after that, Fanny continued her traditional basket making. Um, but she sold these uh, in a larger and wider network. 
And this was really popular for uh, Native families to get supplemental income, um, trade down in San Francisco and bring in that supplemental through the market economy. Now that's just one example of um, actually modern and traditional pursuits merging instead of, you know, necessarily being separate as, as the mythology went. Um, but I do talk a bit about labor in other ways in the dissertation. This data that I have up um, is from the 1920 census in Happy Camp. And um, I can go again into more detail if anyone wants to come back to this later. But what we see is that uh, rural work was largely consistent among working class men in the community. Um, it was a very working class place where people shared a class culture across a few industries like farming and continued mining. Um, logging eventually comes into the story. Um, but there were some middle class positions that white men occupied over native men. I also talk about governmental policy, how things like land allotment and citizenship were supposed to work on paper uh, versus how they actually played out according to regional dynamics. Um, I won't go into detail about that, but uh, I, again, talk about it later if anyone has questions. The big chat, uh, task of this chapter is just to present the reality of Indian modernity. Um, and I ultimately tie that back to the highway marathon by looking at how that event really merged imagination and reality. We have the fake Indian names on one hand and the short haired boxing clad, um, boxing shoe clad carrick runners who worked as miners and farmers on the other. Um, and even running itself was an excellent example of the merging of a standing indigenous tradition with modern entertainment. Um, athletics were a very valuable place to complicate some of these lines of demarcation because they were so visible. Americans uh, didn't really care about labor statistics as much as they cared about sports. But all of those things tell the story of Native people building modern society and pushing back against myths that denied them that agency and those abilities. Um, then I go on to focus on the tourist, the tourist industry. Um, the highway was the racetrack of the marathon, and it was the center of the effort to bring outsiders to Northern California when gold was no longer. Um, the draw came from the trees that you would see on the highway, the coastal redwoods, um, but connected to the booster story is an environmental preservation story. Uh, things like land management, preservation related concerns always involve a negotiation of indigenous land conceptions, land use, um, and ways of interacting with the landscape. So in this era, entities like scientific forest management, uh, national or state parks, the visions for those mainstream ideas about wilderness, the logging industry, stuff like that all intersects in this period. Um, I look into some of that. Uh, it's another way to look at indigenous tradition and American modernity as intersecting issues, not only side by side, but overlapping. Um, the picture up here is of white women activists in the Save the Redwood Leagues. They're still around. Um, they sprung up in this time period to like buy up groves of trees to preserve them. I do need to revisit this chapter a little bit. I used archives from the Save the Redwoods League, um, from the California Department of Transportation Library, um, from booster organizations. I talk a lot about how central the highway was to emerging regional identity and economy, uh, but it was really controversial. 
Um, so I need to go back because I recently did some oral histories with Karuk families that had longtime familial ties to the Forest Service, uh, a ranger station sprouted up in Happy Camp in the time period. Um, and there are subtleties between uh, local preservation efforts, pushes for state parks, a push for a national park, and the establishment of a national forest there. Um, all of those impacted homelands in nuanced ways and are really worth a close look. I also thought I would just show you this picture because it is, I think, one of my favorite images I have found in my five years of research. Um, it's a stretch of the Redwood Highway, this classic little roadster there, um, taken in the mid-1920s. This is from the Caltrans Library in Sacramento, um, and this is, I hope it makes its way onto a book jacket one day. I just finished working up um, another draft of this chapter. Uh, it's also an article I have up for revision and resubmission. So I started to look into the gendered dimensions of some of this history. And uh, this chapter focuses on the woman who was effectively the event mascot. And she's pictured here with the first year's winner. Her name was Dorothy Allen, uh, but she also got a fake Indian name and that was Princess Little Fawn. So in this chapter, I look at the very unique image that Dorothy Allen projected. Uh, we might recognize her pretty quickly as an Indian flapper. Uh, and that was extremely unusual at the time. That is not typically how public native women um, showed up. Uh, flapperdom was typically conserved for white women or it was controversial when it went beyond white women um, from in public commentary. So Boosters gave her the costume, but she actually embellished it in specific ways herself. So for example, she wore her hair in a bob. Um, they didn't make that choice for her. She also didn't like the costume moccasins that they gave her. She is wearing them in this picture, but more often than not, she would swap them out for what her niece told me was her highest, fanciest pair of high heels. Um, the character of Little Fawn was really caught up in ages old lore about the Indian princess. Um, that image is most famously associated with Pocahontas and it has been a persistent and problematic stereotype um, that I'm happy to go into more detail about later. Um, I'll just say briefly that it's very confining for actual native women who are always expected to uh, live up to this imagined ideal with a certain image, certain behaviors, certain relationships with white men, with white society. Um, it's, it's very problematic. And moving past Pocahontas uh, was really hard to do. But I think Dorothy Allen updated the image for a modern audience um, while also reaping tremendous benefits herself. So again, we have indigenous modernity, partially contrived, but definitely also shaped by this Karuk and Yurok woman herself. Um, I'm still in contact with the family to flesh out the story in a little bit more detail, but I've been really happy to have this space to uh, talk about women since the marathon itself is so dominated by men. And that gets us to the final chapter, the one that I'm really working on during this fellowship. Um, and there's a lot I wanna talk about in this chapter. There's a lot left to the story. Uh, unfortunately, COVID travel restrictions did change my plans a bit for what was originally going to be a final two chapters. So I'm kind of trying to reimagine where I wanted to go and decide 
what wraps up the dissertation um, and what might just be part of the book project that will follow. Um, I've been overall really lucky that COVID didn't kind of stop my research in its tracks, but I think every person dissertating right now, everyone on a funding clock that's running out is wrestling with some of these concessions and restrictions and making decisions about that. Um, so my main task in the chapter um, is to kind of recount the 1928 rematch. I wrap up the 1927 race in the previous chapter. Um, the 1928 rematch is also really crucial to my project. Um, it's very different than the 1927 race, even though it's the same course, it featured many of the same runners and it's organized by the same boosters. So I talked before about the promotion of the first race, um, so steeped in vanishing race ideology. And a hold that strong could not totally be broken in just one year, but there is evidence of a meaningful intervention from that first year. So compare the chairman's statement from the first year uh, to the promotion that circulated the second year. Um, the second one talks about uh, the purpose of the race is to give the Indian, the first inhabitants of the Redwood Empire, the opportunity of proving to the pale face world that he is not a dying race, but a strong and virile one. That uh, envisions Indian futures. Boosters wanted to make this race annual. It was very successful financially. And in order to do that, uh, native people had to be alive and well um, available to participate in these athletic contests. This is just one example, but I do think it's a strong one. Um, this second quote, the 1928 quote, is also basically the surviving tagline from the event. And everyone who has written articles about this event in, in local history publications in about the last 30 years has used this quote. So it has really worked its way into the regional memory of the event. Now, of course, um, it's a more pleasant take than a statement saying that Native people were dying off, um, but there's still a lot to unpack here. I'm particularly interested in this word virility, refers to strength, um, but also procreative manhood. And that is like the opposite of vanishing race rhetoric. Uh, this emphasis on and celebration of manhood definitely got utilized a lot in conversations about sports and race. Um, sports were extremely important in defining manhood, still are. Um, and the fact that Native men achieved this remarkable athletic feat had a lot of people talking about implications. Um, there was a lot of support for the 1928 race since the first one did so well. And this is a really fun piece of local history. Our famous coach, Bill Hayward of the University of Oregon track team actually helped train the winner and runner up from the first race uh, going into the second year. Um, but there was also white supremacist backlash and that aimed to safeguard athletic superiority for white men. Um, Shell Gasoline entered an unofficial white contestant in the 1928 race, and he ran under the name Paleface Yellow and Red. Um, he was supposed to be the test of Indian endurance against white endurance. And this move failed miserably. He lasted maybe two days. Um, but the anxiety that it displayed was really common and visible all over athletics. 
um, particularly these types of super endurance events. They were really popular in the 1920s. Uh, just to name a few, there were swimming marathons, like the race out to Catalina Island. Um, there were dance marathons. We have a lot of pictures of those still around. And my personal favorite was flagpole sitting, um, which is exactly what it sounds like. An accomplished flagpole sitter of the 1920s um, steadily set and broke records. And his final show was in 1929. He sat atop a pole for 49 days in Atlantic City. Um, sometimes I'm proud to be from New Jersey. Other times I'm not so sure. Um, I would actually, in the dissertation or book, like to dig into some of these specific endurance contests. Uh, also in 1928, one of the boosters kind of loosely associated with the Redwoods Marathon sponsored a whole cross country foot race from Los Angeles to New York City. Uh, it was it was pretty much a disaster. Uh, it didn't go as well as, as the race that I look into. But a lot of the themes I look at in the Redwood Highway Marathon show up in interesting ways in what they call the Bunyan Derby. Um, and a Cherokee man won that race. So there's definitely a conversation uh, to be had there. Again, kind of interrupted by um, COVID travel restrictions. I haven't been able to look into that as much as I might have liked to. But a lot of this, I think, uh, relates to widespread anxieties and contradictions and violent impulses that really defined American culture in the 1920s. So I'd like to zoom out a little bit from California um, and get at some of those bigger picture issues. Uh, there's racist immigration policy. There's the growth of the KKK. White Americans' racism and their nostalgia for indigeneity and Indian cultures, their ambivalence towards living Native people intersect in really strange ways. Um, the Indian Citizenship Act that uh, all people who hadn't been, all native people who hadn't been citizens became um, US citizens. That was 1924. Um, so that legislation was controversial in native communities. It was implemented unevenly across the states. There's a lot going on here at this moment. And I do see myself eventually doing some more work to put California um, in a larger context and in conversation with some of these issues before wrapping up my argument. Uh, I'm including a short epilogue, though I can't seem to keep it as short as it probably should be. Um, I talked to a lot of Kruk people as I conducted my research, and there were just so many ways that the history of the Redwood Highway Marathon and of the themes of survival and resistance and visibility and cultural influence, those things just live on. Um, some descendants of the winners of the marathons are really talented runners themselves, state champions. Um, some of them recently ran in a memorial road race um, that is put together to honor the original marathon. That was really exciting for them and for the, um, the running club that organized that race. Uh, a tribal member that I have pictured here on the top, Crispin McAllister, he's pictured here with his wife. Um, he organizes a yearly salmon run, also called the Spirit Run, uh, sometimes hundreds of miles through Karuk homelands. And he does this to raise awareness about river health issues on the Klamath. So they've protested dams this way, um, proposed pipelines, 
And running has also become a center of activism, um, not just for this community, but across Indian country. Uh, it has been a tool of activism to bring awareness to murdered and missing indigenous women. Um, it's also, uh, it raises concerns about public health. It provides a tool for healing rituals. It remains relevant in many ceremonies. Um, and it also provides some scholarship and career opportunities. So I originally worked my way backwards into this project from all of the running news I follow. I was an NCAA runner myself. I'm a student studying colonialism and this project really merged those, um, those interests. There's a lot to say about the implications of the themes in this dissertation. I think um, from the largest and most abstract theories of colonialism and survivance um, to the actual act of running itself. Um, so I hope that you've enjoyed my little foray into my dissertation. And of course, I'm now happy to answer any questions you have about what I am doing with all of this information. <laughs> Thanks so much, Tara, for that fascinating uh, presentation. Um, as I said before, if you'd like to ask Tara questions, please uh, type them into the chat box and I will share them. Uh, we already have one and the question is, what do you think was the source of the change in attitudes between the 1927 and the 1928 perception of the race? And this questioner also uh, wants you to know that it was a fantastic presentation. Thank you. Um, that's a really excellent question and one that I dedicate uh, much space to, to talking about in the dissertation itself. I do think that the context of sports is really, really important here. Um, the 1920s are sometimes called the golden age of sport in American history. And I mean, looking around now, it's kind of hard to envision an America more obsessed with sports than we are. They won't even go away during a global pandemic. but. Um, sports, sports celebrities, athletes um, were really highly visible and uh, news of this marathon daily news um, went all the way to England. I have found uh, British newspapers talking about the winner's prizes and pounds sterling. Um, so I think people were really seeing this and appreciating the athleticism to it. Now that's still wrapped up in, uh, you know, the language that you would expect to see about, uh, oh, they're on the war path. They were always called Husky Braves. That term shows up an uncomfortable amount. Um, so again, it's not like this is a total reversal of vanishing race ideology or something, but uh, with Indian celebrities kind of in the mainstream press in these small towns um, and because of the continual effort to bring Hollywood into Northern California to report this race and be part of it. Uh, I do think just that the visibility ended up being a really powerful tool to have Indian celebrities in modern pursuits. Uh, so the next question is, is from our colleague, Steve Bita. It's a, it's a, it's a long comment, so uh, just uh, in, indulge him. Um, <laughs> he also begins by uh, complimenting you on an excellent talk. Steve's question is about how indigenous peoples fit into Booster's efforts to create a Pacific Northwest regional identity. Boosters in the late 19th, early 20th century are often trying to sell the Pacific Northwest as thoroughly modern, not a backwater on the edge of the continent as many whites of the time saw it. 
Uh, but you argue that the Karuk runners and indigenous people more broadly were used to sell the Pacific Northwest as something of a backward looking region, one that celebrated its ruggedness and undeveloped character. Um, what you're getting at here is a larger issue in the history of uh, Pacific Northwest uh, regionalism, namely that the region's boosters have never been able to decide if we're a pioneer region or thoroughly modern. Are we the region of timber or the region of Microsoft? Still, how did boosters square the circle? How did they define the region as modern and one that still contained anti-modern native peoples? It's an excellent question. Um, we have talked about some of this stuff uh, earlier, but it's uh, definitely worth bringing up in detail here. So um, I actually think that boosters in the Redwood Empire specifically, I can't say this about a larger swath of the Pacific Northwest, um, but I think they were actually trying to sell the region as a blending of old and new, um, to not one or the other, but definitely both side by side. And um, I, I see that in the language that they use um, and the things that they're promoting. So first with the native historical actors themselves, I really think that character of um, Princess Little Fawn, she was also called Miss Redwood Empire, um, is really emblematic of that very intentional blending of like ancient and ultra modern. Um, I searched high and low for other like native flapper figures and couldn't find one, couldn't find any in Hollywood. Um, it was a very unique image and the reception of her was really positive. I, I didn't find people really pushing back against the fact that a native woman was Miss Redwood Empire um, or like commenting really negatively on her bobbed hair because especially men in the 1920s really loved to do that about bobbed hair. Um, so when I talk about her, I kind of go into this uh, in the gender dimension, but also uh, along the highway, promoters really want you to know that you can sleep at a quote primitive camp under these towering redwoods and then take your car and drive into Petaluma or a town and eat a wonderful, exquisite meal at a hotel. So um, I, I don't actually see them really wrestling with whether to, like, is it the pioneer society? Is it the ultra modern society? I think for them, they're saying this is the one place where you can fully do both. And that's why we're so special. But it's something that I will keep my eye on as I go forward. <laughs> So uh, uh, the next uh, question, sir, is a couple of questions that go together. So, uh, so um, the first are some factual questions. Again, how many days did the race take? Were any of the runners from the, uh, um, from the Redwood area participants in the race? And this last part of the question goes back to a point you raised much earlier, which is um, prior to this event, uh, pr prior to the time that you study, you had said you would talk a little bit about um, native running, the traditions of native running. So the, that's the group of questions for you now. Great. Um, so the first year 
the winner was um, a man named John Southard. He was the one they called Mad Bull. Um, and just, he did actually kind of embrace that name a little bit, which is part of the reason why I do use it sometimes. His family members will even kind of jokingly refer to him as Mad Bull. So Mad Bull won the race in uh, seven days, 12 hours and 34 minutes. And over the next two days, um, about half of the field finished. And those were all the remaining runners who hadn't been taken out of the race by injury at that point. I think over half the field succumbed to injuries, some really early on because they started this as a sprint and some tragically close to the finish line. They ran hundreds of miles, but didn't quite make it. Um, the second year, uh, the runner up from the first year wins the second race, Henry Thomas or flying cloud. He broke the course record. Um, he crossed the line in grants pass in just under seven days. Uh, six days, I want to say like 20 hours or 18 hours or something. Um, so they're, at, they were averaging about 60 miles a day, sometimes more. Um, I call this a marathon. It's really what we would now call an ultra marathon. And I'm pretty sure that this length represents about 18 back-to-back -back standard marathon marathons of the like 26.2 distant, uh, distance we have now. Um, the first year, all the runners were either Zunis from uh, New Mexico or Karuk men from Happy Camp in Siskiyou County or a slightly larger circle throughout Karuk homelands in, uh, in central Northern California. So um, Klamath River people, uh, not, not as um, like steeped in the redwoods specifically as like the Siskiyou Mountains, the Marble Mountains. Um, the second year, there were almost 30 men, or actually I think there were 31 men who competed. And they, they came from a larger uh, tribal representation. And there were some who were living in um, those towns like along the route. So I think um, Petaluma entered someone uh, there were a couple runners from Sonoma County and Marin County, and I think that they were um, kind of living like in in what sprung up as like the tourist towns and they would have had these working class jobs. I will say that I know a lot more about the Southards. Three of them ran um, and one of them won the first race and uh, Henry Thomas who won the second race. I know a lot more about them in the nitty gritty detail than I do about some of the other runners who just ran the 1928 race, but they definitely, um, they saw the first race and immediately there was talk about who was gonna enter the next, uh, like, you know, in the days after some of the towns along the route were saying next year we're putting in our guy. Um, and, and a lot of them followed through on that. So in terms of, uh, longer histories of native running. Um, I think this is a really fascinating field, um, particularly because uh, people outside of the academy are really interested in it. There was a book that came out, oh, 2004 maybe, Born to Run um, by Christopher McDougall. And that book uh, became an international bestseller and it documented a Rarumari or Tarumara running um, indigenous people from what's now Northwest Mexico. Um, and it articulated this barefoot running stuff. If, if that's familiar to anybody, if there are any recreational runners out there, you probably know of this born to run book. Um, and a lot of people dug into, okay, well, what else is there to know about 
about indigenous running. Um, in, in my context, uh, messenger runners are important. Uh, that would have been the normal, you know, the Pony Express before there was a Pony Express, you delivered messages on foot. Um, depending on region, some nations or uh, kinship networks did this kind of via a relay system where each runner would run maybe, maybe only like 10 miles to the next like little beacon spot and then somebody else would take the message on. Um, there's actually a super robust history of that. If if anyone is particularly interested in this, um, when the Span when Spanish colonizers arrived in South America and saw the Inca running networks, they were like completely blown away. Um, they had the Incas had the most advanced uh, messenger runner system. Uh, messenger runners also really crucial in the planning of several. Uh, what we call like revolts against Spanish and English colonialism in what became the United States. If you've heard of like the Pueblo revolt or the war that we called Pontiac's rebellion, fully organized, largely orchestrated by messenger runners. Um, and I did see accounts of messenger runnings running along the Klamath. Um, that would probably also include some canoe stretches. So like a mix of um, this movement culture on land and on the river. Uh, messenger running is one of the biggest things to look at, but there was also recreational running. Um, it factored into a lot of ceremonies, uh, like puberty ceremonies among the Navajo and Hopis, a lot of running going on in that Southwest borderlands. So um, I won't go on and on and on about this, but if you, if anyone wants more specific footnotes to look at or whatever, I can definitely point you towards some really interesting stuff. Uh, so our next question is from another colleague in history, uh, Professor Julie Hessler, who asks, when you talk about the success of the first race, what did you mean? You suggested a commercial side. How was it financed? And do you have evidence of the tourist impact? Uh, yes, uh, good question. Thanks, Julie. Um, from certainly from the perspective of boosters, this was a very successful endeavor because it brought the awareness that they were looking for to Northern California. Um, this was all about getting tourists in automobiles to, to come out there and uh, coverage of the race showed up in, in newspapers, in uh, like Greyhound pamphlets, uh, just in a lot of the promotional material that boosters in general were circulating about the region. This race was like one of the, the big things that it had to offer. Um, but I also, uh, I know that looking at this race um, just, you know, briefly, it, it can be really striking how exploitative it was and how much of it is problematic. Um, and I certainly maintain that reaction. But after talking so much to the descendants of the people who ran it, I do think it's safe to say that uh, the, the Karuk have seen this as an enormous success in, in their right, where um, their people were seen as these incredible athletes and celebrities. Sports are extremely important in Karuk culture. Uh, it's a big source of pride today in some of these same families and in others. Um, I'm, I was really lucky. The uh, tribal chairman is um, a descendant of the first year's winner. And so I've gotten pretty friendly with him and some other present and former members of the tribal council. And so it's clear from the administration of the tribe that this race is something that they really want to talk about and they want people to know about. And they don't think enough people know about it. So I think um, 
you know, to just say that it's successful, that obviously needs more picking apart something too much more carefully in, in the writing itself. Um, but I think it, it was successful in, in both of those ways from both perspectives. And you asked about evidence. Um, I have been through the records of uh, the boosters all come together to form the Redwood Empire Association. I've been in some of those papers and seen the actual financial ch charts. Don't know those numbers off the top of my head. Um, they like to use words like um, buckets full of publicity or suitcases full of bills. Um, and it was financed uh, by towns along the way who would pitch in a little bit of money to have the runners come through their town and do a little public celebration. Uh, but the race ends in 1928 because the boosters overextend themselves and then the depression hits. Um, so they were running into money problems in that last year really trying to just blow it up into this huge uh, international event, trying to recruit runners from New Zealand and Australia, um, Canada, all over. And they didn't have the money to support that. They were going to delay it until the following year, and then the economy crashed. So that's uh, quickly what I'll say about the finances. That was a good question. Thank you. So the next question asked, did the Karuk runners have connections with runners from other tribes, either in Northern California or elsewhere? Did they know the Zuni runners who participated in the first year? Some of the big Hopi runners of the early 20th century had attended boarding schools, including Sherman. Was there any overlap there? Excellent, excellent question. Um, the thing about the Karuk runners is that uh, none of them attended boarding school and uh, they were, their athleticism came uh, a lot uh, from the, um, the treasury of rural life, that running was actually the way to get around and see people and talk to people. So I do call them athletes in the dissertation. Uh, they certainly competed in this professional athletic event, but uh, they weren't like the Hopi runners who uh, went to, to Sherman or Haskell or whatever. Um, I think a really important piece of this dissertation project is that it, it looks at modern native runners outside of the context of boarding schools. Because um, there is actually a lot of work, a lot of good work done on athletics at Indian boarding schools, how important they were, what they represented, um, the challenges they posed for runners who had to negotiate traditional running versus like Amer modern American Western competitive running. There's a lot of really good stuff there, but typically ruminates on boarding school stories. And this is not a boarding school story. Um, some of the runners who enter the race in 1928 did run. Um, one did run at Sherman. And I think I think someone else had run maybe at Haskell um, and they were always trying to bring in like the famous Zunis, Nicholas Kwanawa, who I might be saying that incorrectly. He was a big name. I think he was supposed to run in the 1928 race, but was injured and taken out of it. So uh, there were no super high profile indigenous runners in either the 1927 or 1928 race who might have been nationwide household names almost at the time, at least among sports fans. Um, but this is certainly this is certainly close to that. And newspapers treated it the same way as when some famous Indian runner was about to run in a city marathon that would really like dominate the coverage of it. So there's a lot of the same stuff going on. 
So um, we're coming to the end of our time. Uh, the next question is, is from our colleague Kirby Brown, who's the director of, of the Native Studies program here at the University of Oregon. And, uh, he has a couple of questions. I will share them with you and then you can take them. But the first thing he wants me to share is that his Cherokee auntie was a total flapper in 1920s Oklahoma. We should probably talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> so um, Kirby's first question is, in light of your research, can you give us a broad snapshot of how you understand in indigenous modernity in both its larger and Karuk specific context? And the second, oh, and he's got a follow-up to the modernity question, how do you engage the debates about how locating native peoples within the linear temporality of the modern or modernity risks reinscribing what Mark Rifkin terms settler time on native realities and experiences? Why don't you answer that question first and then I'll share the next one. Okay, um, well, thank you for the information and for the question. Um, I, I work a lot in kind of the tradition of uh, Philip Deloria who wrote Indians in Unexpected Places. Um, also uh, William Bauer who does a lot of work on California Indians and looks at things like labor history. A lot of the same stuff I'm, I'm looking at um, as well as that, that whole Yale series of Indians and modernity. I've used some of those books as a model and I've talked to uh, Josh Reed and, and Ned Blackhawk about, about my project um, at AHA last year. So I think Josh Reed uses that term moditional to talk about um, macaw economies um, in like the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Um, I haven't used that word myself, moditional, but uh, I think it definitely applies to running in, in my context that I look at, um, where there is, uh, I think, an awareness that this was a, an old tribal practice that's, uh, that was important for a number of reasons, but also that it has like financial value um, and is like this really popular, cool thing for Americans to look at. So um, that might be, a little bit of a superficial understanding of Indian modernity. And I would definitely be very interested to hear more thoughts about this from someone coming from a Native Studies perspective, because I think that I could complicate it in a number of ways. Um, and I think that there's still time for me to do that. Uh, in terms of the the linear temporality, um, I, I have kind of asked my uh, like crew contacts about this. Um, and I'm always struck with like how much they like the race and what happened with it. Um, and how, I don't want to say like uncomplicated it was because we definitely talk about, you know, the implications of having these Indian names and stuff. Um, a lot of it's really offensive and of course everyone recognizes that, but, um, I think the like opportunity to be seen as part of the modern region as it became a place that people wanted to visit um, was a really exciting opportunity. And to be like, I guess to be in that space imperfectly might have been better than to be left out of it entirely, even though it did distort culture um, and history there. So, I will also say that this is something that I will uh, definitely continue to think about. Um, and there's probably some more like theoretical readings that I should dig into more with this that I, I'm not as familiar with. 
Um, I'm not the best at theory. Even my advisor says, Tara, you're very good at making connections when I say I'm not good at theory. So um, there's, there's room for me to look into more there. But I really, really appreciate the question and would also love to talk about this and your, um, your flapper auntie. <laughs> Uh, so Tara, this will be our last question because we're just at the end of our time. And this one is also from Kirby, but it's a, it's a, it's a shorter one, I think. Um, just out of curiosity, were Jim Thorpe, Sack and Fox, and Louis uh, Tuanima Hopi, both of whom meddled in the 1912 Olympics, mentioned or involved in the planning or publicity of the events? Thorpe specifically was enormously popular from the 1910s to the 1930s. Uh, sadly, I don't think there were any Native people actually involved in the planning or like back end promotion of either the 1927 or the 1928 event. Uh, besides the runners from their first year, their images go out a lot in the second year. I do, uh, I do talk about Jim Thorpe and Louis Tiwaniema a bit in the dissertation. Um, but I was also kind of careful to, to not rely too heavily on the Jim Thorpe story. If people know about uh, Native athletes in the early 20th century, they probably know Jim Thorpe and maybe only Jim Thorpe. So um, he's kind of like a good reference point for some of the stuff we're talking about. But again, um, the boarding school story is, is kind of adjacent to what I'm looking at. And um, he pops up as an important character, but uh, not in this region. And um, not in one of these like super endurance events. Although you can make the case that the decathlon should be considered a super endurance event, but thank you. <laughs> so Tara, thank you so much for sharing this fascinating research and for this really interesting uh, Q&A session. Um, it's really been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you everybody. And thanks everyone again for joining us for Tara Keegan's Work in Progress Talk. For more information about the Oregon Humanities Center and our upcoming sponsored events, or if you'd like to contribute to supporting our research and public programs, go to ohc.uoregon.edu and we'll see you next time.